0: Welcome to the All in Wonder Podcast. My name is Sarah Kinsella. And I'm Brenda Del Monte. And we're in season four where we're talking about cultural responsiveness. And today we have Danielle Van Dusen joining us from Open Doors for Multicultural Families. She is an assistive technology specialist and occupational therapist.
1: Hello, my name is Danielle. I'm I am the assistive technology specialist. I'm also an occupational therapist. I've been at Open Doors um, for a little less than a year now, Um, but I um, came on to help with the assistive technology program. And Open Doors in general, we're a nonprofit organization based in Kent, and we serve the greater Seattle area. We support people with disabilities as well as their families to receive the services they need But our organization is different and also very important because we serve those impacted by racism, we're a BIPOC organization, as well as those impacted by ableism. Um, So we strive to holistically represent um, the community that we serve. So we serve over 13 languages, including Spanish, Somali, Vietnamese, Arabic, Mandarin, um, and others. And we are an organization that has several programs where we serve people at the earliest ages with our early learning program. And then from that age onward, we have programs for um, youth and adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities, um, groups that help with their communication skills, building healthy friendships, um, identity development, things like that. And we also help the adults uh, transition from high school onwards to post-secondary opportunities. Um, And then we also have like one-on-one case management to help families kind of navigate all aspects of disability systems and services, especially navigating them um, in a low income, linguistically diverse household.
0: First, I wanted to hear back to what you said about um the kind of the one-on-one option that you have, because I I know about um, Open Doors, and when I heard about this, I just thought that is so unique, and and, um, this has got to be such a great resource for families, um, about how if you have, like, say, a Somali speaker speaking family, you have someone at Open Doors who speaks Somali, who works with that family, and is it true they, they connect with them and, and help with like IEP meetings and not just translation, right? But also knowing their culture and and talking about other things that may come up.
1: Am I saying that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is something that we do. So our case managers and our case management system, we, like I said, serve over like 13 languages. So uh, the families that we serve, if their primary language is not English, then we make sure that all of the services that they can access, that they understand them, that um, they're getting the support that they need and that language is not a barrier. And also that they understand their culture and um, things about them that might be different than like American culture and the things that we assume um, that is like a support that people need, but in different cultures and different languages, there just might be other needs. And so that is a way that our case managers like specialize in that and are able to like fully support those families.
0: Okay. And so you said that, um, the case manager can support that family. Is that a one-time thing or do they like, are they with them for a while?
1: Yeah, it's ongoing, um, until they, feel like they're supported and feel like they are more equipped to navigate kind of the systems on their own. So the programs that they're involved in and the case management case management system varies depending on the family need. And um, if they have a loved one with a disability, like what age are they at? What are the needs that they have? Um, so it, depend. It's It can depend. Do they need IEP support? Do they need housing support? Um, do they need help applying for SSI or anything like that?
0: Oh, so a real wraparound support. That's neat. Nice. Yeah.
1: And I saw that you have
0: early intervention, early learning play groups, I think. I, I was just sharing yes. that with, with people.
1: What are those like? Yeah, so that's with our early learning team, which serves Um, I believe it's pretty much like age zero, like birth to, I want to say, maybe about eight or nine years old. Um, And as far as our playgroups, we have families with those young kids that have disabilities, and they may or may not have a diagnosis yet. But they're invited to come to these playgroups and have that interaction and like skill building and um, just a time also for parents to get together and, um, talk about like their needs that they have or concerns and have like that support group of there's other parents out there who speak their language, um, and like are going through something similar. Sorry. Are there interpreters at those playgroups? Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. What is the most um, requested
2: service for you all to assist with when the um, participants are not English speaking as a first language?
1: It's like the most important thing I've seen is just help with like navigating DDA and like what services are involved in IEPs and like what are the services that I can request and um, especially if um, they need housing, like just getting through all that, the language barrier can be so difficult to know about these services and find them. So I I don't know what the most common request is for services, but I know that that's like a big part of our case management. And DDA is um, Developmental Disabilities Administration. How is it funded? It's funded through grants. Um, Private and federal grants. Okay, and
2: not, not long-term care or any other insurance? Correct. Okay.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah DDA, um, DSHS, um, some other private grants like Dan Thompson. I'm wondering, you have an assistive technology
2: lending library and if um, if some of the families that you're working with are still looking for housing and still trying to figure out how to get their child into school, is, um, is is assistive technology sort of a back burner until you bring it to light? Is that I mean, when we think about the pyramid of need, are we um, is is assistive technology um, probably isn't primary for all the basic needs? So how do you um, how and when in the process do you say let's start let's start talking about assistive technology?
1: Mm-hmm. So when case managers are working with a family and identifying their needs and talking about what diagnosis there might be or um, what type of supports they might need, um, it's my goal for case managers to also have assistive technology in the back of their minds and like, this person might have these really pressing needs or these services but they'll also still make a referral To assistive technology anyway. They they like look at the family holistically and like try to support all of their needs. And so um, I do see a lot of families that are really in need of like lots of other supports and services. And so making sure there's also a way for assistive technology to help and take some of the like load and stress off of things is really important. So we do have the lending library where we have a lot of different. Um, pieces of assistive technology that families can borrow generally for about 30 days. Nice. Um, we do have a lot of low-tech, but a couple pieces of high-tech AT as well, um, like AAC
0: uh-huh. devices,
1: um, which I can talk about later. But my role is to start, when I get a referral, to like start conversations with families about the challenges they're facing, their needs, and identify maybe how assistive technology can help because the education about assistive technologies, I like a lot of parents don't always know about it or know that um, like the term assistive technology. And so um, we just kind of start conversations about what we have that could be helpful. And another piece that um, I think you mentioned earlier as well is that I do attend IEP meetings and make sure that if there is a need for assistive technology that the school team knows about it, that they're doing like an AT assessment. Um, So I help that piece of advocacy that a parent might not know um, how to navigate in like their IEP services.
2: In the AAC in particular, in some ways, low-tech AAC is easier to adapt to different languages because you're, you know, if if it's a single message button, you're just saying it in their language, right? Or if it's a, I don't know, if it's a board maker, then you're using a symbol and you're spelling it in their language. What languages do you have available in your AAC?
1: Um, on our like high-tech AAC, mm-hmm. um, we have apps like Hello, to go and touch chat um, and TD snap and things like that and so I think you're just bringing up a really big point about AC and language access and that in terms of high tech AC we only have what's available on like what's kind of available to everyone in terms of those apps so that's right. actually it's been a it's limited. Uh, Yeah, it's a big barrier to language. And so we do try to supplement as much as possible with, um, we use lesson picks to make low tech boards that are accessible in their language, or we can use um, recordable buttons or you can record messages in their languages, but it is, yeah, you're you're just bringing up a really big point about the barrier in AAC and assistive technology and um, language access.
2: Right. And then I wonder too are we over identifying people as language disordered because we don't have the resources to test them in their own language?
1: Mm-hmm. That is also, yeah, also a really great point. And that is something that's happening. That's something that Open Doors has been noticing for a long time is that people are being diagnosed as developmentally delayed or speech delay when. They really might not be, they're just not, um, they just don't have English as their primary language. So it's just difficult to communicate and really assess what they can and can't do when there's that language barrier. Are there some cultural barriers to technology? People that do have that language barrier are not accessing the same services or Mm -hmm. just accessing them a lot less than English speakers. Even when, um, if they have a child or a student in the school system who is using AAC, um, I do see that they're only using it at school and not at home. And mm. they are also learning AAC in English where their language at home might not be English. And so sure. there's still a language barrier um, between, like, the parent and the child, mm-hmm. and so that is also a big challenge for lots of families. What are you talking
0: about with families when that's the case?
1: Um, I talk as, if they're using an AC device that is able to be a dually set up in their language and English, then I advocate for that. I see that a lot where, um, even if they're using something like proloquo to go where it is able to be used in both English and Spanish and have that dual language set up. It's not being set up that way. Something that I can do is help the parent navigate the AAC device, like just teach them a little bit more about the device and how to find certain buttons that are really important to them. And especially if there's um, a word that's not already on their device and it's in their language, like for example Spanish, um, then I can help show them how to add those buttons in there and to talk about the words and phrases that are important to them. A
2: lot of times, we get a lot of buy-in with AAC around food, mm-hmm. and we'll see low tech with goldfish crackers, and we'll see at home they're asking for their, you know, they're asking for their popsicles or whatever. But um, when you want to think about different cultures that have different foods those foods aren't in there either right or it doesn't say it correctly right so you're spelling it phonetically and do and working around it and I think that the food pages alone are they're highly motivating but they vary significantly um from culture to culture what they eat and um and what the what's what kids are used to eating right? So we have a generic page on touch chat with, you know, goldfish crackers and, um, you know, fruit snacks. And that's nowhere. That's nothing that um, this child's ever even heard of or seen before. So but it's like who who's. Role does that fall on, right, in the school district? Is it the SLP's job now to add all the home foods? Is it? I think eventually there's just it's like I don't know who all's supposed to do this, and that's where you're you you guys come in. It's like you're really bridging a gap between kind of what is the responsibility of a school, of a school teacher, of a school SLP, and and um, moving moving English language forward because that's the language they're being educated in. And then where is the gap, you know, who's filling the gap of, um, but the family doesn't speak that language and the family doesn't eat that food and the families don't have those toys, right? So um, this is such a unique service.
1: And I do think that these AC companies um, like Piercy Sotillo and all that, I think they are starting to head in that direction, like with more um spanish and like pronouncing things correctly in spanish i think that's getting a lot better but they do something i've noticed is the languages that they do have on there um aren't really representing our community so they have they do have spanish and french i think and one of them has dutch or something like that but right. like if you look at the statistics of like for example the United States and what languages are being spoken, those aren't the most common languages. I believe it's, I believe Mandarin is up there and Somali is really common and a common language to speak in the United States. So um, I do think there is a lot of work to be done and like developing those languages into AAC. Um, Danielle, thinking about um,
0: the families you serve and when any of us are working with a family that ha- is it, comes from a culture that's different from ours, um, in whatever way, what what are some things, some guiding principles that you think need to be considered?
1: I I do think it would be really important to make an effort to learn what the family's native language is. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're a therapist, like working maybe in a school, for example, you might not. Get a lot of interaction with the student's parents. And if the person, the student is nonverbal or has really limited language, it could be really difficult to figure that out. But I do think finding out what their native language is is really valuable um, because these students are getting a lot of exposure to language in a different language at home than they're getting in school. And um like we said before like there's these cultural foods and vocabulary like traditions and songs that their families using a lot at home that they might not get the opportunity to learn if it's not developed in with um, their SLP or whoever might be working with them to develop that language. We
0: have a set of songs that we're kind of used to using maybe in your early learning classroom you've got super duper songs or whatever. But I'm um, thinking about, gosh, wouldn't it be so fun to know what that bedtime song is that grandma sings or whatever that um yeah. we, we may have never heard before.
1: Music is really motivating, right? Like we love to learn songs. Songs are really easy for us to memorize and learn. And that can be a really powerful way to learn language. So yeah, learning a song, like in Spanish that of, uh, Family might sing at home or in Vietnamese, like something that's important to them. And like trying to use that in language development, I think could be really powerful. Just the way devices
2: are set up right now, they're like English profile, Spanish profile, right? and neither the two shall mix, but like, like wheels on the bus, for example, they may speak primarily Spanish, but they only know wheels on the bus in Spanish. And in that Spanish profile, you can't tell it to speak English for this page or for this button. You know what I'm saying? They have to go to a whole different set to um, speak something in English in a whole different set. And so even there's a lot of families that they're like, I don't know how we say that in Spanish. We just call that cocoa melon or whatever. I feel like we're in the infancy of bilingualism in AAC in that way. Any other guide po- get just guiding principles about where people can be sensitive, where people can be um, maybe curious and to learn more?
1: I think when there's a language barrier, it's easy for us to kind of assume like that there might be a lack of willingness to learn think when there's like that hesitancy of communicating between someone with a language barrier, especially when you're living in America where the primary language is English and you're someone who isn't really comfortable with the English language, like having like the courage and to speak up about um, like a lot of these places and like speaking to your school team, like that must just be really difficult. And so I think it might be easy for some people to just kind of assume that that parent doesn't want to learn about what their child is learning like there's really great assistive technology tools like even just google translate can go a long way Mm -hmm. um google translate has this like in-person feature where you can record your voice and it translates it like directly to them and then they can translate and so that can i think that can just go a long way in Saying that you care about them, even though there's that language barrier, you still want them to succeed, like with their child, um, in their like communication and um, like therapy practices. I think I mean
2: that's such a good um place to start is check assumptions. Since if I'm not going to assume that body language means disinterest, I'm not going to assume that um, no not asking a question means they've got it, right? I'm, not, I'm gonna assume that I, I can always provide more clarity. I can always give examples. We have time to make a human connection, even though it's double the time with interpreters.
0: Danielle, that reminded me when you were saying that about the willingness of a school um, that was looking, they were looking for feedback on, you know, how are the programs going? how are things landing for you as families at home? Which is wonderful, right? So, like, how is the interaction with teachers going? Do you agree with the choices that we're deciding to do for a curriculum in math right now? Or they did all the things, you know, they translated to different languages to reach different families. And they were always missing one population. And I can't remember which one it is right now. But this, um, and so they said, gosh, you know, I don't think, they care. I mean, we know they care, but maybe they just don't care that much to give feedback about this. I don't know, but we really want to know from them what they're thinking. Well, when it turned out, they had a conversation, some of the parents from that community and culture, and it turned out that that just wasn't um, what, what what they did in that culture. It was, we, we think the principal is the person to make the decisions. We We will support that and they didn't think it was really in their their place to give that specific feedback, but It was almost be disrespectful to respond to that. Yes, but through conversation, they were able to get the feedback that really helped um, having that
1: relationship and a more genuine conversation. Wow, that, that is a really good example, I think, about cultural differences and things like that like feedback or even just general communication like communicating between different like positions of what people think is authority and even like communication between genders can be different um so yeah it's really easy to just assume in that scenario that all these people like might just not care about this topic or whatever but that's really not the case i i do think just emphasizing client-centeredness would be the last thing I would say. Are my goals for this person, do they align with their goals? And that can vary between cultures really easily. And so like, is my, am I projecting goals as like, are they my values? And like, what I emphasize as a goal? Or does that align well with what the goals of like the student or client and their family is. Like, for example, a lot of our therapy goals is, like, centered around independence. Like, this person is going to be independent doing this thing Um, so that they can achieve that level of independence, but that just might not be how a lot of families, like, view. Like, they just might have different views on independence or mm-hmm. um they have more of, like, a family-centered value where the end goal is not always navigating life alone like truly independently and that's what a lot of American culture emphasizes like white American culture emphasizes is that independence like we always want to be independent but um it's so I think it's just important to think about like my projecting my own culture my value based on my culture and is that what um the client and family wants, and I think about um, um I
2: was serving a family who, um in the the boy was at an age where um his peers were expected to speak at church. and um, you know, they didn't they didn't want to work on core words. They wanted to um, figure out how to put his church speech in the device. And so I said, well, let's put this, let's do that first. Because that's the one, that's what you want him to be able to do. And he wants to be part of uh, included in that. And so um it, it was like if I went in to to build, you know, what I do typically first, you know, vocab more general vocabulary, I wasn't gonna build any bridges with that family. And um he uh he It was did did the speech great and he has since um, graduated from high school and works at the church and makes his own speeches and does his own things and um, it it was just one of those things where like you don't know where this goes and but this is what the family values and until I meet that need they're not going to trust me with any additional right agenda other than that
0: Well and when we think about device abandonment too, if it's not something that that student wants to be talking about mm-hmm. that we're not going to use it right mm-hmm. yeah exactly but it comes
2: back to yeah. what what comes what what comes up almost all the time on the podcast is the um limited conversations happening between um, professionals and families. So their professionals are having a lot of contact with the students and and kids on their caseloads but um, the family piece partly because the family's at work the family's got other kids the family's got a lot going on and you're you know their your interaction is at school and the family's not there but we do need to figure out um how to have more consistent communication home to school and and with that language barrier in mind and that is a tall order so um but you know it's worth the fight because the um it's creating the, the the it creates like you said it creates the perception of a language delay that's not even there if we don't um or a disinterest from the parents that's not even there it creates um belief systems that are not um that actually aren't true So that communication between professionals and their families is something that is not built into most service delivery models. And that's something we should be um, advocating for, not this once a month meeting with a parent, once a year meeting with a parent. And then we think, well, I send an email. Well, what language is that in, right? Or um, I send a survey, like Sarah is saying, but, but, but but is filling it out perceived as disrespectful? You know? So some of this is caseload problems too, right? Everyone's caseload's too high for those those, um, personal interactions. But um, I do think that we need to consider how do we change the service delivery model so that there's more consistent communication between parents and the professionals serving their children?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, too, we mentioned this before, but using an interpreter during those times when there might be communication like in IEP meetings between the school team and the parent, um, adding more time to those conversations, just like allotting that time and making sure it's not rushed or um, anything like that. Because when I speak with families, like I don't speak another language. So I do need to use that like interpretation, that translation piece, which Luckily, it's easy because we do have case managers that speak those languages. So that can be like a lot easier. But even with that, my sessions that I have with families, um, when there's a difference in language, it takes anywhere from one and a half times to twice as long um, than if we do share the same language because maybe I have to speak slower or allow the interpreter to translate what I said, and then allow for the parent to respond and translate that back to me. And like, sometimes we can, um, through like the interpretation process, like sometimes there's just a word that we don't understand or something was like slightly miscommunicated. So, um, there's just so many reasons why that might take longer, but I don't believe that that's a reason why they shouldn't get the same education and information from a therapist or anyone on the school team than someone else.
2: Right, right. right. That's 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 one easy thing to do is um, English, English is not the first language. Do we have an interpreter? Did we add time for this meeting? But it doesn't <clears throat> happen. People show up all the time without the interpreter or the interpreter doesn't show or something. That's
0: what I wanted to ask about, actually. So thinking about the interpreter you know, I'm not sure how many listeners have been in a situation where it's, they've seen like a family member or um,
1: maybe another child has been asked to interpret. What are your thoughts around that? Uh, Open Doors as an organization did see this issue in IEP meetings since a lot of our our team members attend IEP meetings. um, They were, I don't remember how many years ago it was, um, but they were seeing this issue in schools where the student would have to translate um, what the conversation was between a teacher and a parent. And they just, a child that doesn't have a disability or doesn't have all these like challenges, language challenges, like that would be really difficult for anyone because they don't have like the language development in general to like able to communicate all these like adult conversations so Mm -hmm. we did as an organization see that happening we open doors did pass like a legislative action and in Washington state you legally need to have an interpreter present at IEP meetings Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: um, students are not allowed and family members are not allowed to translate Um, so that is a lot that was a legislative priority that um, Open Doors had, and we, like, uh, went to uh, um, the state and said, like, this policy needs to be implemented. So, um, yeah, I don't know if a lot of people might not know that about Washington, but I think that was passed in Washington, and maybe even California or some other states, too. But Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely pros and cons to having a professional translator. I do want to mention one of the barriers to having a a Mm -hmm. professional is that parents and families might not feel comfortable talking about a lot of these like challenges or questions they have with a stranger present, a true complete stranger, because oftentimes they might not have ever met this interpreter before, Mm -hmm. or um, sometimes it happens over the phone. And so, um, they might feel like they're holding back in the things that they're wanting to talk about, but just don't feel comfortable talking about them. Um, with yeah. a strange. I feel
2: like I, it's interesting that Washington passed that law because there must be more data around that it's the better medical service. For, oh and or and an educational service to actually have somebody there word for word interpreting instead of inferring and in things that happens when it's not a professional yeah it'd be it'd be interesting for listeners then to look into their state laws around those things and where where you stand in your state on um families inter- rights to ha- to have an interpreter
1: yeah is there anything else that we didn't cover that um we need to know maybe one more story about one parent spoke with me after a while of having one of borrowing one of our tablets from the lending library with um, an AC app that they were working on with the speech therapist. And she told me um, she was using it to learn English better, like as her student uh, and her child was using it to learn English like they were working on that together. And um, the child is actually able to like help her mom learn English, like, more and more, and they were together kind of, like, learning that, and that created, like, a special bond between them, and then once they, like, improved that communication, she was able to even begin, um, teaching her, like, a little bit of Spanish and just improving that language and their, like, bond together, um, Mm -hmm that happened like through that AC device that just had never happened before. They really struggled to communicate and she really struggled to understand what she needed. So I just think that that story was really special Mm -hmm. and that they were like both using that together. It was beneficial not only for um, the student with a disability but also the parent as well.
0: I appreciate all the things that you've helped us think about. Um, Where can we learn more about Open Doors and any other resources you want to?
1: let us know about? Yeah, uh, we do have a website. It's opendoorswa.org. And I think that would be a great place to start and learn more about the programs I mentioned um, way earlier when we began talking. But that was such a brief description of them. Like you can really like search through our website and really get to understand those programs. So I think that would be a great place to start. I think there's also a place to sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to get updates on what's happening and what um, we're doing in our organization. We also have some social media accounts as well. I believe um, Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is Doors underscore multicultural. And then if you search opendoors for multicultural families, you can find us on Facebook. Thank you so
0: much, Danielle. We've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Yeah, thank you.